Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend. We finally saw the sunshine legitimately here in Vancouver this weekend with finally being the operative word. It has been one of the wettest, coldest springs on record so far. And despite the fact that I've been on the road quite a bit over the last few months, which does provide me uh, quite a relief from the dreary weather, it, it's still nice to see things drying out a bit here at home. Though rumor has it we're going to get more rain uh, toward the end of the week, so we are not in our dry season at all. A few announcements, of course, as we get started today. Some upcoming events. The annual conference on assessment and grading. That's in Austin, Texas, July 18 through 20. Uh, And also that fall conference on student agency, the Student Agency Institute. That'll be in Laval, Quebec, October 24 through 26. Links for those both in the show notes. Uh, You can find all the information about those two conferences on the Solution Tree website as well. Uh, The other conference, of course, that I've mentioned in the past, the Teach Better Conference, You know the podcast is part of the Teach Better Podcast Network. That's going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. ton of great speakers lined up for that event as well. And if you use the code SHIMMER22, so my last name, 22, you can get a $25 discount on your registration. So use the code SHIMMER22 when you register for Teach Better Conference in October, and you'll get a $25 discount on your registration fee. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. Of course, I appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Rick Jetter. Rick is the co-author, along with Holly Blair, of the book, You Are Number One, The Science and Reasons Behind Why We Remember Some of Our Teachers Forever. So we're going to talk about that and why we actually do remember our teachers. And in Assessment Corner this week, We're going to talk about what we might underestimate and overestimate in terms of leading change in assessment and grading. And I have a bit of a surprise for you. I'm going to shake things up for the summer. So stay tuned for that in Assessment Corner. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Rick Jetter is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a quick reminder that if you wouldn't say it to a friend or a colleague, stop saying it to yourself, especially out loud in the company of other people. It's so interesting to me that people who are so free with positive, uplifting talk toward other people can simultaneously be so negative with themselves. And of course, you only notice this when people say it out loud in the company of other people because we're not mind readers and we don't know what people are thinking. For some, it's almost an instinct. It's a knee-jerk reaction. It can actually make things kind of awkward, especially when someone has just complimented you. I think we're so fearful of appearing arrogant or full of ourselves that we overcompensate in the other direction and start immediately putting ourselves down. And it makes the other person feel rather awkward because most of us are not very good at accepting other people's compliments. You know, people compliment you. Hey, that was really great. And then you immediately launch into basically telling them why they were wrong. Like when you counter someone's compliment, you're basically telling them they're wrong. You know, I love your outfit. And somebody responds by saying, oh, no, this, oh, I look so fat, or I look frumpy, or it doesn't fit right, or so I'm wrong? You know, I didn't have to compliment you. I, I, I could have said nothing, but instead I said something. And what, you immediately correct me? It's weird. And and look, I get it because I, I was like that for many years until I came to the realization that the best response to a compliment is a simple thank you. Just look that person in the eye and say, thank you, that's very kind of you to say, or I appreciate that, thank you. The problem is that this negative self-talk can become habitual to the point where we don't even need any prompting. It's just our default disposition. And you can tell the difference between that and this faux humility. And I've talked about that previously on the podcast, right? That that sort of faux humility, that aw shucks, who me expression that you and everyone around you knows is complete bullshit. Uh, I've said this many times on the podcast and in other circles, but I'd rather you be an authentic asshole than try to pull off this faux humility. And social media is, again, the worst for this, right? So take the idea, and I mentioned this before, like to be humble means having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. So 
How exactly are you being humble when you post something on social media? Oh, I'm so humbled by the fact that my book is a bestseller. Or I'm so humbled that 187 educators watched my opening keynote this morning. There's no humility there, especially when you're counting down to the one's place value, right? Couldn't you just say 180 or over 150 or so many educators? Nope, needed to count it right down to the exact number. <laughs> it's just it's no humility there, right? Post it. Don't get me wrong. Post it. Say you're grateful, excited, honored, whatever. All good. And you should be proud of yourself. But humble? It's not humble, all right? It's You can't unsee this on social media. I promise you. From this point forward, if you haven't been there already, from this point forward, whenever you see the word humble or humbled on social media, I promise you, you're going to think of me. <laughs> it's, I, I can't unsee it when I see it. And it's just like, oh, the eye roll. So there's a difference between, you know, thanks for listening. I feel better now. Uh, there's a real difference between this faux humility, which we all know is bullshit, and the negative self-talk that comes from a lot of places. And it's interesting because I was reading an article about negative self-talk in preparation for this episode. And it's written by Eva Taylor Grant. It's from November of 2018. And she suggested that there are seven habits that we have as human beings that actually manifests and brings about uh, this negative self-talk. It, it almost, I don't want to say promotes it, but it but it really does make it more common. Uh, the first was not addressing relationship problems. So you have problems in your relationships. It affects your perception of yourself, and therefore you start to talk negatively about yourself. Another one was poor health habits, because that's the connection between our physical health and our mental health, right? Too much time alone was the third one. It's estimated that about 80% of our thoughts on a daily basis are negative. And so if you spend too much time alone, there is nobody there to course correct for you, nobody there to sort of shift how you're thinking or sort of shock your system, if you will. So you just end up perseverating on those negative thoughts. A fourth one was not asking for help and when you need help. And so you're there sitting in those negative thoughts as well. Fifth one was failing to practice self-care, which I think is self-evident. A sixth one, denying your negative self-talk experience, like being in denial about it, not acknowledging the fact that you sometimes do this can actually make it manifest or perpetuate perpetually happen uh, more often. And the last one was, I think, self-evident as well, surrounding yourself with negative people. Um, internally, look, we we all do this from time to time. Uh, it's, it's a pretty normal human reaction, but I think we need to pay attention to it so it does not become this habitual kind of experience. Now, according to Fran Simmons, who wrote a different article that I read in preparation for today, she wrote an article in December of 2017 in Psychology Today, and she said, here's how you overcome negative self-talk uh, to try to counter some of these ideas. The first thing is to, when you look at a situation, is to identify what you can change. Can you change anything about the circumstances? If not, can you change your perception about what's happening? Can you change the way you think about it? Can you find the upside in down? Can you, can you find a way to turn a negative into an opportunity? Something like that. Second one is to check yourself and get busy. And what she meant by that was allow yourself to acknowledge and, and accept some of the negative feelings you might have, but only for a short period of time. She even goes so far to say, set a timer. And allow yourself to kind of stew in that negativity, if you will, or just to acknowledge it. We don't want to get into that toxic positivity or anything like that. But when that timer goes off, go do something. Run an errand. Go go cut the lawn. Do something that sort of takes you out of just marinating on those negative uh, ideas. The third one, she says, which is obviously connected to the previous article I mentioned, follow a healthy lifestyle. Again, that mind and body connection. Um, and also find the humor in certain situations. I think if we can learn to laugh at ourselves or laugh at situations or find some, I know not everything is funny, but can we find some humor in a situation that can go a long way? And of course, practice positive self-talk. Force yourself to do it. And that's something that I've learned over the last more than a decade. As I talked about earlier on this podcast, a different episode, when I talked about that daily journaling activity that I do, which really is about not so much about what I'm writing, but I write things to generate a positive mindset and sort of look to the future. But it's really about generating the feeling because once I have that positive feeling at the start of a day, it really does change the way I perceive uh, the rest of the day. But you've got to work at it. I had to work at it. It wasn't something that came automatically to me. It's just something I had to sort of work at. So 
you know, I think in some ways there are some people who think our negative self-talk is actually endearing, but I have to tell you, I, I don't find it endearing at all. You know, I, I don't want to be around negative people. Even if their negativity is directed toward themselves, I, I just can't do it. I, I, I don't like to be in that environment where people are just constantly negative. And again, I, I understand that on occasion we are all like that, but it's that that person or those people that are just constantly negative. I mean, I have on rare occasion, and, and I, have, I can't say that I've done this very often, but I have on rare occasion asked someone who is engaged in ne- negative self-talk, I'm, I'm, you know, listening to them, I've actually asked them, is that what you actually want me to believe about you? Like, should I start believing that you are, and then fill in the blank of whatever they're saying, like, do you want me to believe that you're ugly? Or do you want me to believe that you're incompetent? Or do you want me to believe that you always mess things up? Like, like, is, are you telling me that's what I should start thinking about you? They never say yes, <laughs> never. Okay. Cause it kind of shocks them a little bit and says, no, I don't want you to think that. Well, then why are you saying that to yourself? Right. It's not endearing or cute. It's, it's not any of that. So here's the thing. Only you know if it's truly real or if it's put on, right? If it really is your default disposition and it has become habitual and you're really trying to change that habit, but you haven't been successful, then maybe it's time to seek some support in a small, medium, or large way, like through a coach or a counselor or even just a friend who can help you retrain your brain and your way of thinking. You remember back in April, we had Morgan Michael on the podcast, and she talked a lot about reframing situations, right? We know how important that is. It's not easy. So maybe finding someone who you can bounce thoughts off of who can help you kind of shift your thinking. Like, am I seeing this the right way? Or maybe help you kind of re-envision what potentially might happen down the road. Look, I'm not trying to be naive or insensitive to the fact that this can be a very real mindset for people. And then it engulfs them. And it can be really challenging. But there's a difference between that and the performative act where you just kind of put yourself down because you don't want anybody to think that you think that you're great, right? We're all flawed, all of us. I feel like once we learn to accept our imperfections, we come to accept ourselves. And when we accept ourselves and our imperfections, we stop engaging in that negative self-talk for the most part because there's no expectation of, of perfection. It's not endearing. And it's, it's just something that I find, if it becomes habitual, is really something that I have trouble being around. Unless, of course, the person is really struggling with that and I can be a support to them or I can help them. Maybe the best meme I saw about negative self-talk is this. The meme said, negative self-talk is just DIY bullying. Like, I honestly can't envision anyone saying, oh, I really love the way he constantly bullies himself. It's so fun to be around. If it's real, if that is your default disposition and you're having trouble changing that mindset, then, you know, my thoughts on it are find the support you need to retrain your brain. I know that's not easy, but it's necessary. Find a friend, somebody that can be a support person to you that can just help you bounce ideas so that you can begin to retrain the way you think about situations and circumstances. But if it's just a performative habit, then it has to stop. If you wouldn't ever bully other people, then why do you continue to bully yourself? Here today for the interview is Dr. Rick Jetter. Rick is currently the assistant head of school at Western New York Maritime Charter School. Rick is also a co-founder of Pushing Boundaries Consulting. He is an author and a co-author of many books, including the book we're going to focus on today, which is entitled Your Number One, The Science and Reasons Behind Why We Remember Some of Our Teachers Forever. Rick has worked in the field of education for almost 25 years, so clearly he is bringing a wealth of experience to our conversation today. So uh, Rick, thanks for being here today. Hey, good morning, sir. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, certainly been connected with you on social media, our first time meeting face to face and really looking forward to our conversation today. And before we get into the uh, the content of the book, which I'm really curious about, I, I just share with listeners, Rick, your career, the arc of your career, the journey, um, you know, from the beginning of your career to where you ended up today as an assistant head of school, an author, a speaker and a consultant. Uh, what's that journey look like for you? Yeah, I actually had years ago something posted on my website, this mythical hierarchy, like this this roller coaster going up, right? That promotion, 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 promotion. People will clobber me, but I don't really believe there's a promotion in education. I think you kind of find your, your footing wherever you are. So I started off my career as an alternative ed teacher and stepped into an ELA classroom, assistant principal principal, assistant superintendent, superintendent, right? You see where it's headed? Yeah. So people are like, oh, promotion, promotion. But then I faced a nightmare board of education. I became a nightmare myself, uh, started drinking heavily, had some adversity that just I couldn't get out of, made some bad choices, uh, and then went into a, an educational resources company, which was kind of like a scholastic, right? Um, and was a business development curriculum specialist there. Loved it, learned a lot about the publishing industry. And then I went back to the classroom. And then from there, I became the assistant head of schools. And in between, you know, started setting up a business with Rebecca Coda, my good friend and business partner, and started writing all sorts of stuff. So, you know, mine was like, like this, you know, yeah. and yeah. it was uh, every experience that I've had, I have no regrets. It made me a better person than I am today. And, uh, I love education. And, and even though it's been an absolute nightmare recently, um, I'm going to stick it out and stay in it and do what I can to help others. Yeah. Well, first, let me say, Rick, uh, congratulations for finding your way forward. Certainly, we get into situations that we don't anticipate. It takes us down a pathway that we never imagined. And for you to have the strength and and, uh, and courage to find your way out of that and find your, your way back into uh you know, a life where you're feeling fulfilled again and, and, and uh, inspiring people. Uh, so congratulations on that. You're, you're absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right about this idea that there's just, we always envision this perfect trajectory and you never really know where you're going to end up. And, and you never know what, what, you know, it is cliche to say one door closes, another door opens, but it really does play out that way. And sometimes um, three left turns make a right. And, and I'll try not to use too many cliches during your conversation, but it makes me think of that uh, as you were describing uh, your, your journey there. Um, so let's begin with the question. I think the overarching question that I would ask about the book, uh, you know, your number one, why we remember our teachers. So Rick, what does the research tell us about why we remember some of our teachers forever? What is, what is the research telling you about that? Yeah. So I just want to do a shout out to my co-author, Dr. Holly Blair. Uh, she is the executive director of the Maine Principals Association. We met um, back when she invited Rebecca and I out to do uh, a book series. We did a launch of both uh, the Dunk Tank and Let Them Speak. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we met her, fell in love with her. And from there, Holly and I were like, let's write this book. You know, mm -hmm. you are number one and let's ask people. Right. So we got our research from educators and parents and like people everywhere, hundreds and hundreds of uh, qualitative data that started to come streaming through our files, right? Mm -hmm. And what we did was we looked at that research like a doctor would look at their dissertation and we had to figure out, all right, what does this all mean? And we found through our research of people all over the nation, we even had some people overseas chime in and give us their thoughts. Um, here are the qualities, right? These characteristics that are tried and true of what they believe be, make memorable teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't try to make 10 of them or 20 of them. We found nine common characteristics, you know? And it was like, if I can memorize them right now, it's like teachers are caring, mm -hmm. nice, funny, exciting, involved, understanding, they have great wisdom, they're human, and they're devoted to the profession in unique ways, right? Yeah. So again, those are the nine. We didn't squeeze out anymore. We just looked at what people were sending us, and they were sending us narratives of memorable teachers, and we threw those word for word verbatim in our appendices. Yeah. 
Yeah. So people can like look through and be like, oh, wow, look at these are real stories from real people who remember their yeah. teachers on top of what the book's research, you know, really demonstrated yeah. to us. So that's kind of how it all came about. It was a really cool process. Yeah. Uh, it took us about, I would say, five or six months just to start nailing the research before we actually did the writing of the book. Right. What? Uh, so were they? They they weren't all educators, though. Were they? Was it a? Uh, uh, what percentage of the contributors were educators? Yeah, I would say it was about sixty-five percent. We had people okay. who were parents. We had people who who didn't have children who wanted to just share a story of a memorable teacher. Okay. So we we had a pretty good canvas. Um, and it felt good because we weren't only looking at educators right. to chime in on what they felt as an educator would be memorable. Right, right. Because it, it is interesting if you if you did have an audience that was 100% educators, when you think about the percentage of students in any school that will end up going into education, it's very small. And yet we all end up on a faculty and then we all start talking about what works for us, what's memorable for us. And we're not really a microcosm of our student body because we are that i often say we are we are the one percent uh we're not the one percent by salary of course yeah <laughs> but we we are the one percent of if one percent of our student population would become educators i think that's actually a reach in some schools and yet we all end up on a faculty we all start making policy decisions we all think about what works and we may not be the best sort of gauge so the idea that you had you know people who didn't have children, people who were not educators. I think that's wise because it probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, it, it definitely gives you a more well-rounded uh, perspective. Um, just, a, just another cool aside, I had my three kids uh, sit at the computer and fill out that Google form without anything from me. Yeah, I said, guys, one by one, go ahead, sit down, fill this out. Yeah. Uh, so their stories are included as well. <laughs> yeah. With no editing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't say that. No, I'm just No, saying. we actually put yeah. a, uh, everything in the appendices the way that it came through. So Fantastic. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, you know, one of the things I, I thought about when I first, you know, when I first read the title of the book and, and thought about, you know, remembering teachers, I immediately went to positive, like inspired and all of that. But there is another side to this, remembering our teachers forever. And that is sometimes, and I know we hate to talk about this, but there are some times we remember our teachers forever because of a negative experience. And I find that that the negative memories on balance, not, not always, but often tend to be more at the front of our minds. I, I know that when I'm in workshops with participants talking about assessment and feedback, I'll often ask the participants in the workshop to think of a time when they were provided feedback and it was a positive experience versus a negative experience. And it's the negative experiences they seem to remember more readily. The, the positive experience take a, a little bit more time. So I'm curious from your perspective, Rick, why do you think the negative experiences tend to be so entrenched in our minds? Like why is it that we remember those so clearly and so readily versus the positive ones? Yeah, that, that's a wicked cool question. And, you know, I was thinking a little bit about it, and I actually came up with a new term that isn't written in this book. Mm. And it's, you're, one can be traumatically sensorized, right? Mm. So let's look at the positives first, right? Positive situations, there's stimuli that takes place, there's sensory things that come into our brain through all of our senses, and it creates a memory for us. The negative ones might be kind of that firecracker that goes off and it could be a very traumatic sensory type of situation, right? So we even start the book off with a story of Mr. Michaels, okay? And that's a pseudonym for a teacher who had massive sensory things going on that started to create a traumatic environment in his classroom. And it ranged from having his cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve to smoking in between classes to you know, eating sandwiches that kids, I don't know, eat anymore. Olive loaf, does that still exist, right? And right, so now all these sensory things, the bad breath, the, the nastiness, the, the making kids come up and treating them, you know, like their dogs to his desk when he would red pen them, right? Mm -hmm. So all these sensories come in and they're more traumatic than some of the positive teachers out there and the positive experiences. So I think you're right. Sometimes the negative surfaces quicker because they're more traumatic sensory events that take place that the brain then triggers, filters and creates a memory space for it, like a filing cabinet. Yeah. When you consider that we when it, we are in our youth, when we're children, um, adolescents, 
we're still not adults and we're still in our formative years. And I think so many of those moments are is so impressionable. I know that, again, the, the idea, I think that's fairly obvious, but at the same time, it does explain why, you know, it also explains why we cheer for the same sports teams we did when we were 12, uh, because, because we, we just can't, you know, the things that happen to us in our youth tend to, to in our, in, and as children, pre-adolescents, et cetera, tend to be that traumatic experience. And, um, you know, your use of the word trauma, of course, uh, listeners will remember that that earlier this year, I, I talked a little bit about uh, trauma-informed assessment practices. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my own reading, because I by no means am an expert on, on trauma, but one of the lessons I've learned is that trauma is not a memory, like trauma is a reaction. And so the reactions are so immediate that you end up remembering it right away because it isn't a memory it's happening to you now because you've been sort of triggered in that way so you know that i, I think your use of the word trauma in that particular situation around those negative experiences is is a is a, 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 a appropriate word to use for sure um all right so when we think about uh being memorable is 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 being memorable is that a is that a way I should think about my classroom? Is that a front end decision that I should make as a teacher? Like, is that the right or appropriate lens through which to kind of examine my practices? When I, when I teach, should I think about, well, oh, this is going, this is how students are going to remember me. So what, what is it that I should be thinking about as a classroom teacher? You know, that's a, that's really interesting to me because at first it might sound conceited. Right. Like, oh, how am I going to be a memory for people to, you know, last their lives forever? Right. It's it sounds conceited and, and very self-centered. But the more I think about it, if we want to create memorable experiences for kids, you know, and I think of I'm thinking of Dave Burgess right now. If I had Dave Burgess as my teacher, I'd probably be a history teacher right now. The guy blows everybody's minds, his energy is is so it just gets you excited to even want to be around them and and i think about okay memorable teachers what are those and it can we front load it in terms of should that be a goal of ours i think you know people's natural charisma and love of life and their positive attitude i think all those things can be you know can carry others through their lives and be memorable experiences so when I think about memorable, I think, I think you can plan for that. You know, how do you want to have a lasting impact on your students forever? And, and we're going to put the conceitedness aside, you know, we'll put that aside. It's not about that. It's not about being her, a hero that everybody raises up on their shoulders and, hey, you know, he's the best. <laughs> we love him and give him awards. And, yeah. But just being memorable can be broken down, you know, into these nine areas and probably right. even more um, if we came out with a book, too, and, and listen to more people about what makes memorable experiences come alive in the classroom. Yeah, it, 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 I, I had the same reaction when I wrote the question, which was, you know, initially I thought this feels a little egocentric. And then I thought to myself, if I'm memorable for the right reasons, and I think about being and embodying those characteristics that make me memorable in a substantive way, then what's wrong with that? Now, I can also be memorable for letting students do whatever they want. I can be memorable for not pushing students to reach high levels of academic performance. I can be memorable for letting uh, all demonstrations of sort of inappropriate or antisocial behavior go. Like I could be memorable for a lot of negative reasons or I could be memorable. So I don't know that that just being memorable or deciding to be memorable. I think for me, as I thought about how you might answer this question, I thought being memorable for the right reasons, being memorable because I am body those things that that really do encapsulate what it is we want um, from our students. So I want to explore a few of you know, these and, and Tom, ideas. Go could, ahead. If I yeah, go ahead. In on that because you're making a really great point. If if a teacher makes a mistake, that's okay. So yeah. long as they take that negative memory and they flesh that out and work with the kids on, mm -hmm. hey, you know what? I messed up here. I'm really sorry. Here's how I'm going to make it right. So right. even the most positive teachers have that humility and that yeah. humanity piece, right? That's number nine or For number sure. eight in our book. Yeah. yeah. That they can they can shape their own humanity so that they're not 
just the ones who are always going to do the right things and then be a flawless human being, you know, I mean, right. no one's perfect. No, exactly. And I, I, you know, being memorable for a positive reason doesn't mean I'm always positive. Right. It, you know, I can, like you said, I can make a mistake. I can, and if I own that mistake and if I, you know, make amends and I just take ownership over the situation, that also makes me memorable, even though I've, I've kind of messed up in that situation. So I want to explore a few of these uh, a little more, um, you know, intricately. Uh, you went through the list and, and for listeners, again, uh, the specifics of that list is that, um, and many of them I think are fairly self-evident in the sense that if a, if a teacher is caring, if they're nice, if they're funny, uh, involved, if they have show understanding, if they have wisdom, all of those really do um, make you memorable. And I think those are fairly self-evident, but I want to explore a few of them and, and maybe let's go back and forth on a few of these and, and have you sure. expand a little bit about what uh, people said about teachers. So you wrote that you, that we remember teachers because they're exciting. What do you, what do you mean by exciting? What does that, how did that manifest in the things that people told you? Yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's not only what they do in the classroom, it's how they teach something and it's how they get kids to come alive. Right. Okay. So, and I use that ex uh, example of Dave earlier, but let me use one of his examples that he has on his uh, social media videos. He compares learning to being in an amusement park, right? And when you're in an amusement park, they make you exit through the gift shop. So if you're riding, you know, this ride and it's all about polar bears, you go in the gift shop. I want to learn this book about polar bears and this about, right? So it's, it's how do you make people come alive? How do you activate an interest in something and it might be telling that one kid, man, you are a wicked cool writer. And I'm, I'm going to give you this journal and I want you to take it home and just start writing stuff down that you're thinking about. And let's turn this into a book, man, and let's get it published. And, right. So it, it's even just a compliment for a kid that makes their world come alive. And that's beyond excitement. That's then taking someone and trying to help them become more than they think they can become. And that's the excitement piece that, you know, I've, I am so honored that, you know, being an ELA teacher and, and teaching writing and, and getting excited about, you know, really cool arguments that you can make. And I have three or four kids graduating uh, next month who are interested in going for journalism and writing, creative writing. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, that blows my mind because that I activated something in them right. just by getting them juiced up. Right. It's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stab a B12 shot in them and, and get them pumped up <laughs> and they might not really follow through with it, which is fine, but they'll always remember uh, Dr. J man. He, he thought I was a good writer and nobody's ever told me that before. And, you know, I'm going to jot down some things in my journal and, and just keep it flowing maybe and try it. Yeah. So that I think is the excitement piece. Is it more about creating exciting opportunities? Because I'm wondering about the teacher who's thinking to themselves, you know, Rick, I hear your energy or the Dave, I, Dave Burgess energy or whatever. I, I don't have that. That's not my personality. That's not how I teach. I don't want to mimic other people that doesn't authentically reflect who I am. So if I'm that teacher, is it more about creating exciting opportunities for students? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you don't have to be caffeinated. <laughs> and, uh, it, and your eyes bulging out of your head and, you know, running around the room, like, you know, it, yeah. it, it really is. It, it, you don't have to be, you know, uh, someone other than who you are, but that you can flip that switch and activate some sort of excitement with kids. Right. You can have any personality on the planet, you know, and, uh, you can, like I said, you can drink decaf and just do the same, <laughs> have the same power. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. You also write in the book that, and we, we've touched on this a little bit, but I want to explore this a little further because I think there's some gray areas that, that teachers may feel comfortable or uncomfortable with. And it's this idea of being human. Mm -hmm. So teachers are memorable because they are human. In what ways? What, where, where's that line between you know, being vulnerable, being human, but then also maybe sharing too much or being too open with your students? Do, where, where would that line might be? Yeah. So, you know, our students come to us with, with all, they connect with us yeah. and they, they tell us all sorts of stuff. We had no idea they were even going to cut That was going to come out of their mouth. Right. Yeah. And they're sharing their lives with us, you know, and we're always mentors to them. 
And, you know, the human through our research had to do with loss and mistakes and hurt. Okay. If teachers can identify with, with kids about their losses and hurt and, and their mistakes, and, and that's kind of tied to wisdom as well in the book, right? Okay. It, it's ha being able to, you know, kneel down to a kid, look him in the eyes and say, hey, man, look at this is what happened to me, too. And I'll tell you, here's what I learned from it. Right. And in having that type of humanistic characteristics of sharing all those tragedies, even not that you're going to plague them with all your baggage, but that you're going to be able to relate to them, listen to them and then share things about yourself that creates that bond together with kids. Mm -hmm. And, and we've all experienced some sort of lost tragedy, right? We've, we've all experienced something, but the fact that the research gets us to think about, wow, these create memorable experiences for kids where somebody, you know, comes back and, Hey, Dr. J, I remember when you were talking about this man and, you know, I, I'm, thank you for listening. And it just, you know, some of the ideas you had for me to try to pull myself out of that dark hole is, was really cool, man. And I just, I wanted to tell you, thanks. You know, it, those are the memorable teachers, those mentorships of humanity that last forever. Yeah. Makes me, as you were responding there, it makes me think of the idea that sometimes we have to stop being the teacher and just be a person. And, yeah. and just connect, right? That empathy, that understanding. I, I know that a lot of teachers, as they begin the career, think they have to stay buttoned up. They've got to stay distant. They've got to, and, and to a point you do, of course. Uh, but but there's also that side that says, I understand what you're going through or just listening and not always offering the immediate solution. But uh, because we don't always have all of the answers and sometimes students just need someone that will listen to them and empathize with what they're going through and that they'll work through it. Um, but if we're always pouncing, if we're always being the teacher, then uh, I think sometimes we don't show our humanity in that way. The other one that really caught my attention was this uh, devoted to the profession. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, well, two things I'm wondering with that. One is um, specifically, what are you referring to there? But second, I'm wondering how the students would know how how will they know that I'm devoted to the profession? Yeah, so they're gonna they're gonna hinge on everything that comes out of your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that can be either directly to them or something they overhear, which makes them think that maybe someone isn't exactly devoted to the profession in the way that they think about you as a kid. Okay, and and I'm not. I'm not bashing unions or bashing people who don't believe in charter schools or anything like that. But when, when students overhear things about like, you know, we're told not to stay past three 30 because we're, we're in negotiations right now. And, you know, when kids pick up on that, they don't see you as devoted to the profession or devoted to them. And I'm not saying those discussions shouldn't happen, but they should be, where kids can't hear them and they shouldn't hear about charter schools with money that's tied to their heads and how they travel from one school to another. So one district loses money because of school choice. And so all these types of politics and issues and things that teachers may be feeling, if kids grab a hold of that and they hear you talking about that, that's going to put you in that line of a negative memory, you know? That's not going to, and again, have those conversations. Everybody's entitled to that. I was just reading an article about uh, a school, I think it was in Massachusetts, the teachers went on strike. And even though it's against the law to go on strike in that certain province, in that area, um, the teachers did what they felt they had to do to stay strong within their union. But in what ways does that have a negative impact on the kids, right? Mm -hmm. Who are told to stay home that day. So we talk about devoted to the profession in ways that don't paint a negative picture for why we got into this career, um, why we got into this career passion. Mm -hmm. And if, if our kids overhear stuff like that, they lose respect for us. Yeah. Um, and there are adult conversations that should be had absolutely 100%. But then there are adult conversations that hit the ears of our children. And it, 
it doesn't make us look good sometimes, you know? So I think that's that devotion to the profession is that the kids feel like they're number one and we want to feel number one Mm -hmm. and anything that, that kind of pasteurizes that into something else, you know, doesn't make us a positive, memorable teacher. It's an interesting idea, uh, certainly a a blurry line, because when I, you know, as you, as we, you were going through that, it made me think about our previous, just moments ago, talking about being human. And uh, certainly, you know, my place of employment, uh, my compensation, my life, my workload, that is all part of my humanity. And so this ping pong between, you know, kind of glossing over and you know, being something or, or pretending to be something that I am not in, in my humanity, does that compromise my humanity while I'm trying to, in some respects, shield students from the conversations? Some of them will watch the news. They'll hear about negotiations on TV. It has nothing to do with what the teachers are talking about, but they'll see them in the interviews and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Because again, I, I recognize where you're coming from in those extreme conversations. I think we need to shield, but at the same time, if I am human, if I am showing my humanity, where's that line for you? Where do you see that? Yeah, you know, in one example and, and things that, that I've heard teachers say is I don't get paid enough. Mm-hmm. Now, let's just take that one statement, right? If a kid hears that now, the kids aren't in the faculty room. They're not, you right. know, but if a kid hears that. You know, I don't get paid enough. What does that translate in their brain as? Mm -hmm. Well, they don't care enough about me. Whatever their pay is, right? I mean, that could just have a different message behind it. So I am certainly, we, Holly and I are not telling people to stop being who you are or believing what you believe. But there's that point in terms of what are the kids going to see and feel from you, right? That energy and that passion to be there. And, you know, if someone, come, if a teacher comes in and say, hey, look at, I had a really rough night. I was up all night because, you know, I had the runs or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's different than, than some of those other things that still make us human, but create a negative response system for our kids. Right. That's probably where that line is, right? And making sure that students don't get the impression, rightly or wrongly, that, uh, well, with more money, you would care about me. But right, right. Uh, yeah, so be, being mindful of that, because I think it's a, it's, it is a fine balance that teachers walk uh, in, in terms of showing their humanity, understanding the emotions of the time. And some of those negotiations can be incredibly stressful. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, going on strike can put families' financial situations in difficulty. And that is very human. And that is part of being an adult. And yet, I do think there is a point where we have to shield some of that from students so that they don't get the wrong idea that this is, even though it is our place of employment and this is our job, we go to work. I mean, I had a a colleague of mine years ago who used to correct people when they say, how was school today? And she as a teacher would say, "Um, I don't go to school. I go to work. Like that's my job. I'm not in school. I'm not a student. Right. And and she wasn't being indignant about it, but she was just basically saying, this is my place of employment. This is my profession. Right. But but that idea of of shielding it um, from the students to a point, so they don't get that wrong impression about because um, most because even if teachers are in the midst of negotiations, they still care deeply about their students and want them to do well. Um, and we don't want to get that false false idea. Uh, listeners, the book is called "You Are Number One: The Science and Reasons Behind Why We Remember Some of Our Teachers Forever," and we definitely do. Uh, Rick, we've got two questions as we finish up today. Uh, these are questions that I ask all uh, people who come on the podcast. The first one, uh, and you can take this in any direction you want to go. Uh, but the question is, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Oh, man, you know, sometimes I'm so tired that I sleep no matter what, but <laughs> you're right. What does keep me up? It's, oh, gosh, Tom, there is so much going on right now. Yeah. And, and I, I just, in you know, in what ways can we teach kids to think critically without, I'll use myself, without me pushing my beliefs down a kid's throat. Right. And, and there's a big difference. Um, that keeps me up at night, not because of the media. I, you know what, I'm almost, I almost don't even bother with the media at all. 
uh, because it's so hard to trust, you know, the media. But, you know, what's interesting about our school, Tom, the school that I work at is we are sponsored by the United States Navy. We are an NJROTC school and we are not allowed to share our specific belief system with our students, with our cadets. And it, it makes me think of those Marines who stand at Air Force One. It doesn't matter who the president is. Right. They respect the position. We're not saying they have to respect the president. We respect the position. We respect our country. Um, we can have kids think critically about any issue. But the moment I say I'm pro this or against that, I'm going to turn half of my classroom off, if not more. And, and I think we can do things in a very artistic, creative way, still dealing with difficult issues. That's okay. Mm -hmm. um, but doing it where we, we, don't, we don't take kids down a different path just because it's the path we want them to go down. Mm -hmm. Again, I think that as much as any time, uh, in my career, uh, teachers definitely have to walk that fine line uh, of of causing thinking, helping students sort of process what's happening in the world, and yet trying to remove any of our uh, perspectives, bias, et cetera, or political leanings. Uh, that, that is a fine line that we definitely walk. Um, last question, Rick, as we finish up today, uh, is about personal success. Just generally speaking, uh, again, take this in any direction you want to, but the question is essentially, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Oh, man. Man, you asked some tough questions, Tom. <laughs> My apologies, but that's, that's the, hey, you agreed to be here. <laughs> I think it's a great, you're awesome. I think it's a great question. Um, You know, I tell my wife on all, all the time what a great mom she is. And and she says, well, you know, you're also doing, you know, 50% of the load here too. Um, I think success is for me. When I hear my, my own kids, teachers, or friends, parents, talk about how respectful and amazing my kids are. That's my own success mm -hmm. that shines through me and, and my wife, right? Yeah. If someone doesn't have kids, it's going to be what others say about their service and contribution and impact on others. And it's almost like full circle in this podcast how are we going to become that memorable person that impacts other people? Right. And I speak, my, my kids, what they do when I'm not around speaks about me. And that will maybe make all of us memorable, right? My, my entire family. Um, and again, those who don't have kids, in what ways will you be remembered for the great things that you do to help others? Um, I think that's success. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Being memorable again for the right reasons, not, not, uh, memorable for the wrong ones with our, our children being, you know, our legacy in terms of how they impact the world. And certainly if you don't have kids, this idea of how I am remembered, how I helped others, uh, how I supported them, all of those things. Definitely. I love that. Uh, listeners, you definitely can connect with Rick just about anywhere. <laughs> Rick, you are on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Rick Jetter. Uh, Rick is also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can head to Rick's website called rickjetter.com. There's also www pushboundary no pushboundconsulting.com uh, i'll have links in the show notes uh, for all of the i enjoyed our conversation thank you so much tom keep up the great work this podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I have a co-host. I want to welcome back to the podcast, Natalie Vardabasso. How are you, Nat? I am great. It's a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning here in Calgary, so I'm doing great. 
Great to have you back. Longtime listeners will remember that Natalie was a guest on episode 31 about a year ago. It was early May of 2021. Natalie is a newly appointed associate of our Solution Tree Assessment Center, which our team is very excited about. And I've been working with Natalie in her leadership role and with her former school for the past couple of years. So Natalie and I talk assessment and grading a lot. But Nat, you just recently left your position. That's correct? Yep, I did. One of those types of breakups where it's kind of sad because nothing went wrong, but you just know that that's not right for you anymore. So yes, I left my job. Well, Natalie is also the host of the EduCrush podcast, and she just released an episode explaining in detail as to why she left her job. So listeners, you can head over to that episode. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to her podcast as it is excellent. So, okay, with the both of us being podcast hosts and having these assessment conversations from time to time, we kept saying to ourselves, oh, that would be a good segment or that would make for a good podcast. So we decided to make it happen. So this summer, Natalie's going to be joining me during Assessment Corner. We're going to be having an ongoing assessment conversation, a grading conversation about a variety of topics and certainly would be most open to having listeners ask questions or send us topics you'd like us to explore. So make sure you email the podcast that's tomshimmerpod at gmail.com and send us some ideas. So, okay, so here's the plan. Uh, Natalie and I are going to spend 15 minutes uh, each time in kind of a guided yet unscripted conversation. We'll pick a topic, we'll kind of dive in, and we may even continue the topic in the following week. But we're going to limit ourselves to 15 minutes. So today, we thought we would start down the road of leading the transformation in assessment and grading in a school context. So Nat, you're up. <laughs> okay, here's, okay, here's the topic. We're going to start the conversation, 15 minutes on the clock. Here's the question I want to lead okay. with today. In your work, what's one thing that you underestimated and one thing that you overestimated when it came to leading conversations about transforming oh, an assessment and grading culture? <laughs> so 15 minutes? Okay. 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, let's start with, well, let's take it apart. Let's start with the underestimated part. Um, this is probably something that'll speak to your heart very well, but I vastly underestimated the amount of time change takes. <laughs> yeah. The very first year, so throw it all the way back to like four years ago when I really started in more of an, not by title, but by role and assessment leadership position, there was a strategic plan outcome that I was handed when I was like given the chair position of a committee that said, <laughs> design and develop a balanced assessment framework for K to 12 and implement an aligned progress reporting system. <laughs> <laughs> so no problem, you know, wide eyed green Nat was like, okay, challenge accepted. Mm -hmm. I can do this. I'm all about outcomes. Let's crush it. And, you know, three months in when we're still having a conversation about what is assessment and what's the purpose of it, I realized that I might've made a grave error. <laughs> assuming so, it could be done in one year yeah i think that time piece is is a critical part right i mean mm -hmm. it, it, i have i have this kind of uh uh two set two mindsets around the time sometimes i i'm convinced that we keep telling ourselves change takes a long time and so then it manifests and becomes that and yet at the same time we can't necessarily underestimate or uh, the idea that that people trying to go mm -hmm. through a transformation in their practices right so that mm -hmm. it's an interesting idea mm -hmm. and then i think I underestimated the teachers are so busy it, like I will say it a million times again that it's probably one of the hardest jobs in the world and mm -hmm. the amount of things on teachers plates is overwhelming at the best of times and then you enter a new assessment and grading paradigm into the mix and people just need a lot of time to sit with things and to let it marinate and to sink in so I when I think of like the amount of time it took to get to the point that we were fully outcomes based it was mm -hmm. a lot of here's a chunk now let's all sit with that for like three to four months and grapple with it and have coaches come in and work side by side. And then here's another little piece and then let's sit with that. So three to five years. I mean, that's what the research yeah. says. And we, I mm -hmm. know that now, but when you first start out, it's hard to imagine that it could take that long because if you understand it yourself, you're like, well, this is easy. I'll just explain it to everyone else. They'll get it. We'll do it. Boom, done. But it, yeah. it just doesn't work that way. And you, and you may forget the process you went through in terms of your own understanding. You may forget how long it took you to come to terms and now you're ready and you want it to happen like that. Do you yeah. think like, I'm wondering your perspective on this. Cause I've often thought about this myself. Like what do you think it's more understanding the new ideas or is it letting go of, of, 
past practice? Like, what do you, what, from your experience, what did you, what did you find was more challenging for people? I know, I know there's a gray area between the, the line is blurry between the two, but I often wonder, is it the, is it the understanding of the new idea or is it the, my ability to let go of what I used to do? Both and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that's sure. such a cop out answer, but truly a it both. Pop it's out. A, it's a both a and. <laughs> and I think there's just the elements of you've got adults trying to manage their own mental wellness and health in a job as well that mm-hmm. is always kind of overshadowing all things in teaching and education. Yeah. And, you know, any new or old information is in like direct proportion to their wellness at a given time. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were also going through a pandemic when I was implementing and trying to lead a lot of these changes. So I think there's, but there's always something, right? Like there's things that happen in school cultures all Mm -hmm. the time that take up so much of the, the compassion of teachers and take so much of their energy that that's always kind of living Mm -hmm. in the middle of that mix as well. I've often wondered sometimes like, I know it, like you said, it's a little bit of both and, and certainly my, reluctance to let go of past practice, I think inhibits my ability to fully embrace the new, Mm -hmm. like the idea that I'm not ready to go all in with the new idea, because I'm still maybe hesitant to let go of an old practice or, or mourning the loss of something that I used to do for 15 or, or 16 years. So there is that blurry line between the two. Mm -hmm. And and so, yes, we joke about it being a cop-out, but I think it's a little bit, a little bit of both because of that under, you know, you, you just, you're, you're hesitant to let go of what you used to do because you feel like what you used to do is the right thing. And I, that's where I have to always remind myself, I I trust teachers and I trust the Mm -hmm. decisions they make. I don't always agree with them, right? They can make decisions that they believe are in the best interest of students. And I believe them when they say that Mm -hmm. we may disagree on the practice, but it doesn't mean I don't trust their intentions. So their intentions are so honorable and, and above Mm -hmm. board that it is hard to let go of things that you've decided were in the best interest of your students. Yeah. I think there's always a little piece of every teacher's mind though, that maybe knows it might not be the best practice. They're open to the logical introduction of better and new evidence of maybe this is a different way of doing things. I think it's a lot of fear of, I don't want to go back to those first three years of teaching when I was so overwhelmed and so confused and staying up till two in the morning, planning every single day that I'm Mm -hmm. cautious to embrace this new because it's going to be so much more work and I'm going to go right back to being a first year teacher and I don't Mm -hmm. ever want to relive that trauma. So I think there's a bit of that fear too. That's probably true. I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, human beings have different reactions to change. We're not a monolith. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these different reactions are are, are probably ones that we've all kind of experiences. What, yeah. what about overestimated? <laughs> Was there something that like when you looked at it and you look in, in, in retrospect, something that maybe you made a bigger deal out of than, than it, you should have? Mm. Yeah, I guess if there is, if you phrase it as made a bigger deal out of, I spent a lot of time early on really consumed with the concept of buy-in and feeling like I needed to have 100% fidelity to an idea before we made any practical changes as a school system, like as a system, as a school. And it was actually a conversation with Thomas Gusky, Hmm. like two or three years ago. I can't remember quite when now, but he had come in and was giving us some coaching around grading reform. And he had cited research that says the number one thing that'll change teachers' mindsets and beliefs is a change in practice. And when they see the outcomes of a better practice, they'll start to change their mindset and beliefs. And that shattered me because I was really holding back because we were a few years into having the dialogue and doing a lot of professional learning and working in our collaborative teams to enhance our assessment practices. But to your point, there's a lot of those like lingering practices that didn't align with the new philosophy and we were in this cognitive dissonance space. And it was that moment that made me realize that we needed to just jump in and that the collective expertise was there to figure it out. And, you know, maybe some were further along their learning journey and some weren't as farther Mm -hmm. along, but putting them all together in that new system made the learning exponential. And it was like little things that I had been saying for years that suddenly people are coming to me like, did you know that you have to plan assessment in advance of instruction? Like, that's the only way to do this. You're like, oh, what? <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Wow. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> but you yeah. needed to change but there is practice. That- of course. And there is that self-discovery, right? I, I think we can we can certainly be and, and sound a bit flippant about that, mm-hmm. but it is important for people to come to terms with those ideas, right? And you think to yourself internally. So for those of you out there, you know, leading change in assessment, you've probably experienced this where you've said something in October and by April, 
people are repeating that back to you, but making it as if it was their own discovery. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing because what that tells you is that their mind has, you know, finally wrapped around the new idea or they've tried some things and, and they've, you know, been a little bit experimental with their assessment and grading practices. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they've discovered a new practice for themselves that is much better for their students. So mm -hmm. I love the idea of learning by doing. I lo love the idea because we, we know that when we implement something, we're going to make mistakes. It's not going to be as good uh, as it will be because, you know, through practice and refinement, we'll make it better. But I've often tried to convince teachers and well, not convince them, but just say to them that I I know teachers make good decisions when it comes to students. So anything that you think is not done well is still going to be good for students. You're not going to necessarily in 99.9% .9 of the cases, you're not going to do damage. You're just going to look at it and say, Hey, that was good. I think it can be better. And mm -hmm. how do I continue to refine it that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really wise way of putting it is one of my, there's a different way. My colleague says it that isn't probably okay. quite as kind, but you're not going to make <laughs> My, my colleague Jody, who you know also, always says, well, yeah. you're not going to make them dumber. Yeah. That's kind of like, let's, <laughs> there's yeah. some joking behind that. But that is the point is when people get really overwhelmed about, about mm -hmm. what's going to happen with the kids and what, what are all the things that could go wrong? Like most of those things never come to fruition. So trying to like spend less time in that panicked anxiety state, mm -hmm. I think is always helpful. And speaking of the emotional experience too, if we're going back to overestimating, yeah. I think I overestimated, um, the amount of trust that teachers have in their own professional judgment. Because mm -hmm. when you're moving to more of an outcomes-based or standards-based paradigm, it actually opens up more freedom for the many ways that you can gather evidence towards an outcome. And I view that as exciting and all of the opportunities get me fired up. But I think the freedom causes some people a lot of fear. And if all they've used thus far as like a proxy for learning is multiple choice or you know worksheets that can be counted on a binary, then it makes them panicked. They're like, what do you mean I have to observe collaboration and, and talk about my observations as a part of the assessment? Like, right. oh, that's a little, that's a little subjective. And you're like, it all yeah. is <laughs> surprise. Exactly. Right. So where does that come from? I mean, I have some ideas and thoughts, but I'm curious from your perspective, where do you think that hesitation comes from? Mm. Oh, it goes right back to like a deeper human narrative. I think we all hold from many experiences in our life that mm -hmm. we ourselves are not worthy that we need to gather our worth from external places, um, that we don't have a sense of intuition that is valid. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that, and that, I think that I'm going kind of big on that, but I truly think like when you, when you mind down to it and you get to know people really well, we talk to people on our podcast all the time, there's mm -hmm. always this inner battle we're all fighting and, you know, it comes up for teachers, but it comes up for everyone that I'm not good enough. And so I need to put my trust or I need to put my, uh, assessment practice in this case in external things, because I don't have enough value on my own. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we don't, we don't know about our judgment because we don't collaborate enough with colleagues. Mm. I think one of the things that breaks down that doubt about our self judgment is when we collectively work with our teams and calibrate on success criteria. That's when we'll start to realize that our judgment is aligned with our colleagues. And once we start to see that our judgment is aligned with what our colleagues are thinking, we'll start to trust our judgment more. I think teachers hesitate because of parental pushback that mm -hmm. seems to be more intense than it used to be. Yeah, uh, I think that some of the hesitation comes with the fact that we've been fooled into thinking that some of our, you know, our electronic grade books allow us to calculate grades to a decimal place or two decimal places. And how can I in my judgment be that precise, even though that's somewhat ironic because of the unreliability of the percentage scale, but, and, and I've talked about that many times on the podcast, but the idea that we think we lean so hard to the scientific side of assessment that we lose the art of assessing yeah. the art of grading, the art of judgment. Mm -hmm. So we have to work at that. Don't we like do, mm -hmm. in your, in your previous role, were, were teachers actively working on calibrating and, and learning to trust their judgment through that work with each other. Constantly. It's really funny. Yeah. We, we've talked about this a ton, but we weren't technically like a PLC school when this assessment work started, but using assessment, we obviously had the conversation about what do students need to know and be able to do first. And then we really got into how do we know that they can do it? And the collaboration just naturally flowed from that. You had to. I mean, you've got all these outcomes in their grade books now, and they're like, well, I know it's important. I know we've all agreed that collaboration is important, but I actually don't know mm -hmm. what that looks like. And I don't know what criteria I would use to assess that. What do you do? And before, like, it just naturally bred 
a deep, rich collaboration around outcomes and evidence of those outcomes. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it is critical. It's, you know, uh, the expression teaching is the second most private act adults engage in <laughs> is one that we can really, you know, unfortunately put ourselves in a position where we do, we don't actually work collaboratively with one another that we, we are collegial, mm -hmm. we are colleagues, we, we teach next door to one another, yeah. but we don't really know what one another is thinking in terms of, you know, assessing through criteria. And so the more we can break down those barriers, the more mm -hmm. we can bring people together, the easier it is for us to start trusting ourselves and our own judgment. Mm. isn't it well said yeah. mic drop yeah 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> mic drop well it's true uh, we're not quite there yet we're almost there <laughs> okay. but as we finish up here we've got a you know about a minute and a half or so in our in our in our segment left let's think about if if someone listening right now is feeling somewhat um i suppose frustrated or nervous or um just sort of anticipating some of the challenges they might face what's the what's having been through this in one school what what is the best sort of overarching advice you can give to somebody who who's maybe in the midst of it mm -hmm. or facing this journey and wanting to really uh you know face it head on and, and really yeah. have some success in moving a staff forward what's, what's the best advice from mm -hmm. your perspective i mean it ties right back to what you were just saying but let go of the notion that you're in this alone really lean on others in my case i Step one was building a, co we called it a coalition for change, just stealing from some of Thomas Guskey's work. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Cotter would call it a coalition of the willing, but mm -hmm. really who is your coalition of people who also feel frustrated and want to see change and want things to be different and build a ton of trust in that group norm for probably longer than you think you need to, because there will be storming that'll come as things get tricky, right. but mm -hmm let go of the notion that you're in it alone would be my best advice. Yeah. Well, I think that's great advice. And that is a, a great way to end our 15 minutes. That is 15 minutes on the nose listeners. Nat and I will be here all summer. So if you have questions for us, uh, Tom Shimmerpod at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter. Uh, but we're going to have this ongoing conversation over the summer, uh, a little bit of a different format. Always fun to have a co-host uh, in some way, shape or form. So uh, Nat, looking forward to our conversations going forward. Yeah, stay ready for the next episode of Assess That with Tom and Nat. I told <laughs> you I'd we'll fit it in it. there at some point. There we go. There's our name. Yeah, because Nat and I were thinking about what do we call this segment, Assessment <sighs> Corner? So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's call it Assess That with Tom and Nat. That'll be our our, our title for the summer yeah. as we uh, as we head into uh, into the summer months. So hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on uh, email. We'd love to address some of the questions. And if not, Nat and I are just going to have a continued conversation about assessment each, uh, each time. So again, we're on an every other week format. Um, and so we'll see you next time. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, Tom. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, Please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assess That with Tom and Nat. That's our rebranding of Assessment Corner this summer. Uh, or if you have suggestions about the podcast or feedback for me about anything or guest suggestions or anything that like that, just would love to hear from you. Also a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events this summer and into the fall. Remember, we're on the every two weeks schedule now for the summer, so our next episode will be on June the 6th. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform is always going to help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, and on social media. I would really, really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>